Oh, hey, guys. It's me, Sheila Gunn-Reed, quite possibly your favorite rebel, but I'll settle for being in the top 10. And you're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, The Gun Show. However, you know what? This is the internet, so you can listen or watch whenever you feel like that's the convenience and beauty and ease of not being tied to terrestrial radio or TV. Now, tonight, my guest, well, she actually might be your favorite rebel. It's Tamara Ugolini, our Ontario-based reporter. And she's joining me on the show to talk about some of the work that she's been doing to dig the fact out of the fiction and the conspiracy theories that you may see online about COVID and vaccines and vaccine injury. I think it's really important work that she's doing because there's so much information out there. And who has the time to dig down? Well, you know what? Tamara's got the time. Now, if you like listening to the show, then I I think you're going to like watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long form TV style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show, which obviously I think is kind of good, but you also get access to Ezra's nightly, fully produced Ezra Levant show, David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup, Andrew Chapados's show, Andrew Says, and Kat and Nat's brand new show, Misunderstood. We added two new shows sort of in the last year, and we didn't raise the price. We are protecting you from inflation, if you can imagine that. It's only eight bucks a month to subscribe. And just for our podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus subscription by using the coupon code podcast. When you subscribe, just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to do me a little bit of a favor. Wherever you find this podcast, would you kindly, if you enjoy the show, and I think you will, leave a five-star review? That puts us higher up on the podcast platform algorithm. So people will see us first and sooner, but it also puts us higher in the podcast rankings than let's say CBC with their $1.5 billion per year of your money, courtesy of Justin Trudeau. So if we want more people to find us and hear the other side of the story, I'm going to need that five-star review from you. Thank you very much. And please now enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. So joining me now from her home in Ontario is my friend and, and I say this lovingly, COVID statistic nerd, Tamara Ugolini. Tamara, thanks for joining me. Um, I wanted to talk to you about some of the uh, work that you've been doing for us at Rebel News and some of the work that you're doing. I really think it's the Lord's work when you rescue people from conspiracy theories. And I, I don't blame people for falling for conspiracy theories. Things that seemed so outlandish two years ago, the government has done to us, like seizing bank accounts and arresting peaceful protesters and telling you that you're on a no-fly list because you didn't get a vaccine and installing vaccine passports. These were all wild conspiracy theories. The people who brought them in said that they were conspiracy theories a year ago. And so normal people, they do 
you know, they they sort of latch on to these conspiracy theories because they're just trying to make sense of the world. And I do think you're doing the Lord's work by investigating things to find out if they are indeed true, because there's a lot of sinister things out there, or if they are just somebody's imagination running wild. And one of those pieces of important journalism you did, um, you asked the question, is Trudeau monopolizing vaccine technology? And you got to the bottom of it. What prompted this and what sort of were your findings there? Well, like you said, it's easy to latch on to these conspiracy theories. And maybe they're not conspiracy theories, but as you said, you know, a lot of them turn out to be conspiracy fact when you see the way that the world is going and the way that our elected representatives are not actually representing the Canadian public. So I thought, wow, that's not an outlandish claim given the track record of Justin Trudeau and his government and the way they have handled themselves in the past in terms of their ethical convictions. So I wanted to really see for myself what exactly the claim was and how Trudeau was was maybe enmeshed into it. And what I found was there's a lot of really sort of broad claims being made online, but the specific claim, if you really break down what's kind of uh, circulating on social media, the specific claim is that the Canadian government, not necessarily Trudeau specifically, is monopolizing or, or sorry, rather uh, receiving royalties on the lipid nanoparticle technology, which is an integral part of the COVID vaccine. So it's not even necessarily the COVID injectables in and of themselves. It's the a piece of the technology used in their uh, research and development. This and is sorry so, yeah. to interrupt. This is why I lovingly call you the <laughs> COVID nerd of the company, because you have d just taken all these big crazy ideas, these words that we never even used in common parlance two years ago. Yeah. You understand them and you can break them down for normal people. So I thank you for that. And sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, that's OK. And that's <laughs> what I mean, too. I was like, well, what? This doesn't all make sense. You have to you have to break it down and figure out which bits are the truth here. And so that's what I've naturally gravitated toward trying to do. Um, so so, yeah, what I found was this lipid nanoparticle technology, which is actually dates back uh, at least a decade ago, it was used primarily in the research and development for the cancer, COVID cancer um, treatment options. And so it's not a new technology. Well, sorry, it is fairly new. But anyway, regardless, what happened was Technology Partnerships Canada, which is now a scrapped program, had given a grant to, uh, in this particular instance, Arbutus Biopharmaceutical Company in British Columbia to do their R&D, their research and development around this technology. And gosh, what was it? Almost $4 million they granted, or they they had allotted them like $14 million and they ended up only using $4 million. And as of 2017, Arbutus has only repaid like $14,000 of that four, almost $4 million grant. So I'm like, you know, yeah, I want to see the royalties on that technology because otherwise it's coming out of the taxpayer's pocket to fund that grant program to this pharmaceutical company. So I don't know about anybody else, but I'd like to see some of those royalties come back and, and get repaid to the government, i.e. our taxpayer dollars. Yeah, it's, um, I'm so glad you got to the bottom of that because, yeah, it I had seen the rumor floating around online, Trudeau owns this technology or he's getting royalties from this technology. But when you drill down, 
the taxpayer should be getting royalties <laughs> on this technology if it had been fully uh, developed with that grant. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so there it's truthy the rumor, but yes. not not quite true. Um, exactly. Now you did, and the reason you do need to drill down on these um, conspiracy ideas, I don't even want to call them theories, um, is because sometimes there are conflicts of interest or perceived mm -hmm. conflicts of interest going on. And one of those that you discovered was uh, one of the experts on the Ontario science table did not declare fully all of his perceived conflicts of interest. Uh, Dr. Peter Uni, um, tell us about sort of what could have been or was definitely problematic um, in his role with the science table and then, you know, what happened to him once your story broke? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack with the Ontario science table. I feel like I could dedicate probably the rest of my life just to delving into each of their members. And then, of course, the Dalai Lana School of Public Health, which is part of the University of Toronto, and all of these little subsidiaries of where these people come from, the, the science table, and who their stakeholders and funders and donors and all the next people are. Um, but specifically, Peter Uni, he's the director. So he's like the head honcho of the Ontario science table. And he's been really responsible for doing a lot of the media engagements and, you know, contributing to the fear and hysteria around the COVID response and uh, driving policy but for our elected officials. Um, so... I decided to look into him after he was saying some really outlandish things on, on the media, on his media engagements. And I found that his advocacy for vaccine passports was simply to coerce people because as he found in his home country of Switzerland, that when immigrants were coming in and they weren't vaccinated, if they couldn't engage in everyday society, they were more likely to go out and get their vaccines. So you're seeing that it's not based in science and evidence-based decision-making. It's literally based on coerce, coercive um, guilt and uh, and holding this carrot of freedom in front of people's faces to gain their compliance. Um, and then, of course, once my report came out, which also a really fishy part of my conflicts of interest, which I would have never known this unless I had interviewed uh, the, the woman, Catherine, I can't think of her, her last name off the top of my head, but she was a story that I featured where her religious exemption was denied by her university, even though other students and other programs had almost identical religious exemption paperwork to hers and theirs were approved. And so what I found was this third party law firm was responsible for making these decisions. And Peter Uni was actually the expert witness for that same law firm. And so I wondered if he had even declared his conflicts of interest to the law firm before he advocated for these passports. And was he involved at all in who received a, an exemption and who didn't? I mean, the whole thing is just a mess. And so when I pointed some of that out, you know, we you can show clips in my report. People can go back on the Rebel platform and search it out. A mere week later, Peter Uni resigns from the Ontario Science Table and is fleeing the country as of, I think, the next month or two. Um, so I think that we're seeing that the, the rats are starting to flee that ship. And then oddly enough, Byron Bridal, a virologist and immunologist, highly renowned in his field, Dr. Byron Bridal, let me know that he was also an expert witness in 
a court case around the mandates for hospital workers. Just, of course, him and Uni were on opposite sides of the courtroom. And he really questioned the credentials behind Uni's education and experience to provide such a testimony because he's an epidemiologist. He has no real understanding or workings within the immune system and, of course, vaccine development. So it's actually kind of shocking that an epidemiologist would be an expert witness when a law firm is reviewing the veracity and strength of someone's religious convictions, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, what does he have to do with any of that? If your religious convictions uh, tell you that you cannot take this vaccine, what does an epidemiologist have to do with it? He's definitely not a theologian. Um, <laughs> we, we know that much. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that you dug into that and, I think you might be at least a little bit responsible for him evacuating the country. However, we're all supposed to stay home to stay safe, but he can just relocate. Yeah, willy-nilly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And go live his his life with his, what was it, I think $300,000 a year salary, and he gets to pocket that and then just kick yeah. high ground. Yeah, and, you know, as an epidemiologist, an expert witness for a law firm, well-paid, probably getting um, a little cash on the side to be an expert witness for the law firm. I'm sure he's not mm -hmm. doing this out of the goodness of his heart. Um, deciding if other people get to get a religious exemption so they can maintain their job just to pay their bills and keep the lights on. It's kind of gross, actually. It's it's really gross and really sad, really sad for the general public who's been at the, the receiving end of these what I would call discriminatory practices against them. Um, this law firm told Catherine, for instance, that she didn't have the sincerely held religious belief. Meanwhile, or it was a singular belief. Meanwhile, the other people had the exact same paperwork and theirs was approved. So the whole, it just, there's no rhyme or reason. It's all arbitrarily enforced on the whims and on the advice of these experts who never declare their conflicts of interest. Yeah, on the advice of experts who have a vested interest in continuing the system and continuing the discrimination, if only for the reason that they don't want to publicly admit that they got something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, now, uh, some other work that you've done, um, the Trudeau government committed $75 million to the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. However... Um, then we got um, an order, pa I think it was an order paper response. I should know because the story was mine. Um, just they had only received 400 claims to this vaccine injury support program. The reason the number is so low, I don't think, is because that there are that few um vaccine injury reports. You and I hear these vaccine injury reports all the time. Mm -hmm. The problem is they're not being approved by the doctors so that people can submit them to this program for um, compensation. The program itself costs $21 million to administer. And I think they've only paid out four claims in all in the whole country in the last uh, six months. Um, oh, sorry, fewer than five. So what does that even mean? That could mean one, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so they've got all this money in the fund. Government pats itself on the back. Oh, we're looking out for the Canadians. I guess we've medically coerced. And uh, they're paying this other third-party consulting firm $21 million, I guess, to deny the claims. I think that's what's happening here. And 
doctors aren't allowing claims to be submitted because they're getting pressure from their uh, overseeing bodies, like the colleges of physicians and surgeons are saying, you better not approve that um, Mm -hmm. because your license is on the line. And this is supposed to be a completely fair system. What do you think? Well, so far, the proof is in the pudding that it's not a fair system. I think that one of the first reports I did on this was with Dr. Patrick Phillips in the spring of 2021 when his adverse events reports were first being denied by his local medical officer of health. And so he was sounding the alarm bells then of how... um, futile his attempts at documenting these adverse reactions were and that he was then cited and cautioned by his medical officer of health and like you said his governing body the uh, college of physicians of surgeons of ontario to to stop essentially stop documenting this stop submitting these claims because they're cumbersome and take a lot of time to sift through for pretty much nothing um so we kind of knew that this was the direction that this was going the canadian system is is very there's a lot of uh, filtering involved to get a documented reaction to the top and have it acknowledged and so they're just not making it through that filtration process and unfortunately as it seems that the buck is stopping right with the first filter which is the family doctors because all those other layers have come top down to say hey guess what if you make these claims we're going to investigate you or 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 everyone's too scared to speak out against it um, for fear of reprimand or punishment. And um, it's really heartbreaking for the people who, you know, for instance, took this job to keep their job and now they're out of work anyway. And so they're left with the very thing they were fearful of before, which was being out of money and a way to feed their families or pay for their homes or their cars or whatever. And so they got the the jab to keep their job, to keep, to stay afloat. And now they can't work anyway. And they don't know if they will ever be able to. Uh, For instance, that story that I featured with Diana Hoare, she's a 55 year old woman who was previously healthy. And uh, she just heard back. She got a call from, I guess she has a case manager as of yesterday or today. And they're going to give her a call back in four weeks. And she's like, in the meantime, I'm in a wheelchair And my husband has to take all this time off to to take care of me and take me to my appointments. And, you know, just the rigmarole involved with all of this is just such a failure, especially when you, yeah, you coerce people and threaten them with societal contracts to be, to be part of society and and take place in, in their job and their school. And now when they did their part and they were injured, they just, you know, oh, well, we'll just push them to the wayside and we'll, we'll pretend like we're going to give them all this money but by the time it, any any of it comes to fruition, maybe they'll be long gone. We don't know. Yeah, it reminds me of the case of Natalie Klein um, at Blades to Fades Barbershop, um, Ralph Klein's niece, actually. She um, was coerced into taking a vaccine because she wanted to visit her mother on Vancouver Island. And she did take the vaccine. I think it was the Moderna vaccine. She had a catastrophic stroke. A healthy woman my age, so like youngish, um, a little boy at home, business to run, completely devastated her health and her life and her business. She's, you know, she's recovering, thank God, but it's a long road. She's on nitroglycerin tablets like she's an 80 year old man with a heart condition. And at the end of the day, because she could only take one dose of the vaccine, the second dose, her doctor told her, 
don't take it. She can't see her mom anyway. So she was coerced into taking this vaccine to see her mom. And at the end of the day, because she can never be fully vaccinated against COVID-19, she can't get on that plane to go see her mom or get on the ferry or take a train. Um, and, you know, that her story is not all that unusual. You and I hear vaccine injury stories all day long. The idea that just 400 people have been accepted to this program, I think between you and me, we've easily heard from 400 people with vaccine injuries. And the vaccine injuries, they're not always catastrophic, like, yes. you know, Diana's and Natalie's. They are sometimes just this persistent brain fog that make functioning in your everyday life impossible and makes navigating this vaccine injury reporting system nearly impossible too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the government is getting the benefit of the injury that they force you to get. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, just today, I think I finally caught up on the emails that I've received in the last week and a half just specifically to vaccine injury. I had to start directing everything to its own specific folder because the the emails yeah. that were coming in was just crazy when I put that call out. Um, yeah, I think it was the second week of March. And I just today got caught up on all of them. And there does seem to be some patterns. Like, I mean, I'm not a doctor or a medical professional, but I can, in talking to people, I see that there are some patterns developing, but you're right, the brain fog associated with this. And I think the very first person I, I interviewed with an actual vaccine injury who at the time wasn't documented was Kevin Street. And he he couldn't, there was no way he could keep up with the follow through and the advocacy that was needed for him to get any sort of help or assistance with his injury. And then his wife had to go back to work because he was out of work. And so he no longer had his, his advocate either. And it's just heartbreaking to hear from these people. And, and once again, you know, the government saying, oh, look, we did something, but what is it, a fourth, a third of that's going to go to this law firm? And what are, what's, what are they tasked with? Um, why don't, why aren't we giving a larger portion of that to the people injured? And maybe it's, it's wrong to say, or to, to make note of this, but I remember at the beginning, two people are like, well, if the unvaccinated come to the hospital with COVID, we should deny them medical care and cut off their, their assistance at the hospital and to medicine and to doctors and the, the medical establishment. And what if, what if there was people who were that aggressive and that mean on the other side who said, well, these people, they, they trusted that science and they, they did they took the shots so they don't deserve any sort of assistance or help now i mean just seeing how absolutely gross the thought process is on both sides of that spectrum it's just the, what devastating societal effects has the government done to to people it's just so un-canadian and disgusting well and by not recognizing what it is that caused these medical problems in these people we're denying them the appropriate treatment mm -hmm. when we're sort of skirting around the issue that this uh, COVID vaccine caused this problem in them, we're also denying them the treatment that they need. And uh, I, I'm told that um, healthcare in this country is universal, regardless of your race, creed, religion, you should have access to the medical system. But that's not the case because we're denying a certain s subset of people access to the medical treatment they need so that they feel better because we can't count them as a vaccine mm -hmm. injury statistic because it goes against the narrative. And, and on that note too, I think that there's 
there's a big divide as well in the medical establishment that they genuinely don't know what to do with them. Like they seem lost themselves. How do we deal with, with these people coming to us with these reactions? And there, there is, like I said, that pattern, but they're also very highly individualized. And uh, sometimes I wonder if they, the doctors and the nurses and the establishment even know what they're doing to address this and, and if they have proper treatment options for people suffering. Now, speaking of people suffering, I truly believe that there is also a subset of people in society who are so uh, caught up in the fear of all of this that they can't just unwind and see through it. And I think that's largely been caused by TV doctors and uh, biostatisticians, which I'm not even sure is a real job. Um, and <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because um, there's one in your home province of Ontario, Ryan Imgrund. He's mm -hmm. sort of been the uh, guy who's like, the next wave is coming. Um, make sure you're wearing masks. The next wave is coming. Make sure the kids are all suffering by having to wear a mask seven hours a day at school and all their sports are canceled and they're sitting on the couch and watching Netflix because that's the only safe and healthy thing to do. Um, he's been a, like a, a locker downer and he's used his... Um, his role as a statistician or his consulting as a statistician to sort of enforce bad government policy. He describes himself as a consultant, which means he gets paid to um, give the government reasons to do things. And he's a private sector science advisory board member. And also, as it would turn out, a high school teacher. And the reason we're talking about him is the other day, he did not want a maskless school assembly to happen on Friday. Uh, he tweeted this March 29th. So as we're recording this, it's March 30th yesterday. He's apparently still on Twitter. Um, and he says, burn the school down? Question mark. Or cancel the whole school maskless assembly on Friday. Tough call. Could these people at least let the kids leave the school before they are collateral damage in their hypochondria yet again? Um, what wh What's going on here? Because um, Randy Hillier spent a day in jail for, I guess, probably telling people to hold the line. Likewise with Pastor Art Pulowski, 51 days in jail for giving a sermon to truckers at the border. Uh, peaceful protesters um, were treated like terrorists for not even getting anywhere near this sort of And this guy is gonna get government contracts out the wazoo and he's a public sector employee because he's um, a high school teacher. There are no consequences for this madness. Well, and that's the crazy thing is that he's a high school teacher and the lack of consequences on that side, the hysteria generators, the one who are just the ones who are just crippled, I think crippled with hypochondria is a word that I have used before. Um, I just I don't know if they're they will ever come back from this. They're just so far down. That is a conspiracy rabbit hole, in my opinion. They're so far down this covid religion that I don't know if he can ever come back from, from something like this. And um, the fact that he's a high school teacher and who knows if he'll even get a so much as a slap on the wrist for making such an outlandish tweet where you have doctors saying, oh, do you, we really think that the COVID injectables are safe and effective? And then they get Extremist. investigated by the CPSO. <laughs> and they're, yeah, they're like rooted in conspiracy and Russian yeah. troll farms. And, and they get their licenses removed and reprimanded by their college and ousted by their colleagues. And someone like this can make an actual 
uh, property destruction question, like posed as a question, thinly veiled, and just continues on with his life scot-free. Um, that just shows this, the, the two-tiered kind of citizenry that's been created here, where these people on this pedestal can say what they want at any time without having fear of reprisal. And then if you question the narrative, it's like, oh, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist who gets their information from Russian trolls. Yeah. I mean, this guy, he's going to uh, be treated as though, look how much he cares about these kids so deeply about their health that he would question, float the thought bubble that he maybe should burn down their school. I, I mean, as a, and I can't even imagine what the parents are feeling if this guy teaches at your kid's school. Yeah, I think he's a high school teacher, but yes, absolutely. And the thing is, it's been two years. Like, when do you say enough is enough? The masks haven't done anything. I thought the vaccines were the way out and going to save us all. And now we have more deaths than and injuries than we did before we had vaccines. So at what point do you say, okay, where's my rational thought? Where's reality? And have a real look at through, take off those rose-colored glasses and say, you know what, this doesn't make sense anymore. It's been two years. How much longer can I keep pushing this hysteria before I look like an absolute clown? I think it goes back to they just don't want to publicly admit that they were wrong. That's a very difficult thing for narcissistic people to do. Um, they can't say, well, new information came in and I learned something a little bit different. Um, there, it, I, I think that's part of it. I think there's some um, financial incentive to keep this stuff going. If you're a consultant that uh, pushes statistics to enforce government lockdowns and you're getting contracts for that, of course, you're going to continue on with the fear mongering. But I also agree with you that a lot of this is a bit of a religion. Their religion is fear. They've replaced fear of God with fear of a disease. And there mm -hmm. are rituals. They Ritual hand washing and mask wearing and chants and TikTok dances. Um, look, I'm and little Catholic. slogans. Yeah, I'm Catholic, so we do the calisthenic thing at church too, where it's like stand up, sit down, kneel, get up, do this with your hands. So it's <laughs> for me when I look at this stuff, I'm like, ah, it's very similar to a religion. Um, their behavior and they are true believers. And like when he, if mm -hmm. like with every cult, at the end, when the mass catastrophe sometimes you know like when you hear about the the mass suicides of a cult those people are the truest believers everybody else got off along the way when the first comet didn't strike the earth and you didn't get taken to heaven in a, a spaceship you leave and then mm -hmm. the ones at the end are the truest most radical believers and i think that's what we're seeing here the people who are the truest believers in the covid scare those are the ones that are left and they mm -hmm. are radical, the kind that, I guess, threaten to burn down schools. And walk away from it without even a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that is exactly it. Uh, you look at how this guy's going to get treated versus how uh, honkers <laughs> get treated. Uh, he's not even going to get an $81 honking ticket, if you know what I mean. Tamara, I know you're very busy today. <laughs> uh, thanks for jumping on the call with me. Yeah. Um, what are you working on next? 
Oh gosh. Okay. So I have, uh, I have some stories coming out hopefully later this week, maybe over the weekend, early next week, uh, regarding the world health organization's pandemic treaty, or uh, they've changed the word now to like a contract, um, the wording. And so that's, that's slated for, I believe 2024. And so there's a, a group, the world council for health has formed and they are calling out to the various countries and specifically my interview will be with a Canadian doctor um, who's going to discuss the health implications of a, a treaty such as this for Canadians and some of the more sovereign nations. Um, and then I'm continuing to follow the vaccine reaction reporting. And one of my next reports will be to discuss an adverse events reporting system that was developed by just average everyday Canadians who saw the failures of our formal federal system. So we're going to discuss that and how they are vetting and vouching for these reactions and also putting them in touch with professionals who can hopefully assist and at least make these reactions a little bit more manageable for people. Yeah, I bet they're doing it without involving a $21 million consulting firm, too. So, so, you know, whatever the government does, the private sector can do much better. Tamara, thank you for all your hard work on uh, these COVID cases and your advocacy for the people who are not only forgotten by the system, but so often abused and let down by the system. I know um, Canadians appreciate your hard work on this stuff. Well, thanks, Sheila. Yeah, and I love doing this work. So thank you everyone for your support. And of course, uh, to the rebel platform for allowing me to, to go with, with the stories that I see of importance. So thank you. Well, everybody, I think I'm going to try something new on the show here. Keep things a little bit exciting. Maybe do something that Ezra does and that David Menzies does. And that is read some of your letters and comments on some of the work that I do, in particular, the show from last week. And these are hand-selected by my producer, Efron. I haven't read them yet. I have not reacted to them yet. So let's do this organically together, if you will be. I suppose my crash test dummies on this new sort of segment of the show. Let's take a look. VI Gab sends us a comment saying, I gave up on the CBC and other mainstream news sources. They lost all credibility during the trucker protest. Boy, did they ever. I think CBC had to retract two separate stories relating to the convoy, one of which they accused the convoy of being Russian-backed, but the supply of Russian spies and foreign meddlers never quite seems to meet the demand over at CBC. Um, the Toronto Star, they had a story wherein they alleged that guns were found in the convoy. A testimony at a House of Commons committee indicated that wasn't true. And another mainstream media source, it might even have been the CBC, they tried to fact check an American outlet when the American outlet said that the police had guns drawn on protesters. They tried to say that that wasn't true when there was video all around the world that came out of the convoy where police had their guns drawn, extracting protesters from their trucks and their RVs. So, yeah, they did lose all credibility. Um, unfortunately, they didn't lose all their funding from Justin Trudeau. So I guess that's. The bad side is that there will never be a market correction for just how horrible they are, because 
Even if the people stop watching, Justin Trudeau keeps giving them more and more and more of your money. Next one. A. Rolls says, it's been a horror that musicians have been so silent. Are they all leftists? Thank God for the few who have stepped up. This is a comment on my interview from last week with Brad Schistemus from Five Times August. And he's been sort of writing these anthems of freedom. And he wrote one in particular about Justin Trudeau's treatment of the convoy. And I had him on the show last week and it was a fun interview and I should have him back on again um, after he does his next single. Um, but it is true. And I think it has something to do with uh, the industry itself and Hollywood and how it has been sort of the entertainment arm of the Democrat Party. Musicians used to be, you know, part of the counterculture. It's an industry that is based entirely in free speech and free thought and free expression. That's what art is. It must be free for it to be art. And yet, so often we see musicians becoming the enforcers of ideological homogeneity, that everybody has to think the same on every single topic and talk the same. And uh, they've really been sort of the pop culture police force of the Democrat and progressive movement. They're not the counterculture anymore. I think a great example of this is Rage Against the Machine. They are literally the machine now. Um, far leftists in complete ideological line with the mainstream. Now, I sort of listen to country music and not even new country music, old country music. So I'm not the best judge of this stuff. I, as I said, I've checked out of the culture a very long time ago. But um, it, there's a reason I like older country music. And I think those people are still not afraid to be conservative and express different views and sort of be pro-gun and pro-God. Um, and I know there are probably some of those people within mainstream pop culture. But if you speak out, you get canceled, you don't get invited to the fancy parties, and you don't get that next record deal. So there's a lot of financial disincentive to sort of keep your politics to yourself, unless your politics conform with I guess Hillary Clinton. Anyways, she's the real voice of the youth, isn't she? And let's keep going. Joyce S. says, thank you for this interview again with Brad from Five Times August and for keeping this whole movement up front and center where it belongs. Democracy matters. How could we not keep the movement for freedom and particularly the truckers convoy in the front and center? It did something incredible. First of all, it exposed the mainstream media for the shameless liars that they are. They would lie about things that other people had caught on video and try to gaslight the public. But it also exposed the fragility and the sensitivity and the cowardice of Justin Trudeau. He first ran away when the truckers convoy came and then they hurt his feelings. So then he overreacted and treated them like terrorists with the invocation of the Emergencies Act. We can also see how quickly the banks went along with all of this. All the systems failed that were meant to protect the public during a time of the pandemic. That's when your charter rights are the most important. And I think that's why the truckers actually went to Ottawa in the first place. They saw all the systems failing them, the courts, their politicians, their doctors, 
judges, everybody who is supposed to step up and be factual and not political during the pandemic didn't happen. The business community, likewise, another complete and total failure, just reaching for handouts instead of standing up for small businesses. The truckers saw all those institutions fail, and so they had to take matters into their own hands. So the truckers' convoy not only exposed Justin Trudeau and the media, but they also revealed the power of the people once the people stand up. And as Ezra said, just by the convoy going to Ottawa, they succeeded because now the vaccine passport is gone in so many provinces. The mandates are being repealed. And those things never would have been done without the truckers. And I'll say it today, as I always say it, thank you, truckers. Well, everybody, I guess that's it. Those are the hand-selected letters. Maybe I'll do this next time. This was kind of fun. You know what? If you want to have your letter read on air, send me an email to Sheila at rebelnews.com. And in the subject line, put gun show letters two ends please gun show letters and who knows maybe your letter will be one that i read next week that's the show for tonight thank you so much for tuning in i'll see everybody back here in the same time in the same place next week and remember don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think